Please turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 3. I once had a roommate that I did not get along with at all. Um, Really, really bad. Really bad. (laughs) There were times when literally... um, we were so mature. Uh, we would walk through. We would not speak to each other at all. We'd walk through the house, you know, and it was just like these, you know, magnets that are the polarizations opposite. Just, just oh man, I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to talk to him. It was really, really bad. And I will confess, you know, there's just this little part of me, not a really big part of me, but just this little part of me that kind of wished that at some point he just pushed me so I could pop him one, you know, because that'd solve everything, right? <laughs> Sometimes you. Uh, are wronged in such a way that it's really difficult to release the anger and to forgive. If you've never experienced that before, you will. It's just a matter of time. Put enough miles on in a broken world, it's going to happen. Where it's just so difficult to forgive. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about forgiveness, uh, he taught them some stuff that was really radical, really difficult for them to accept. I want you to look with me in chapter 17 of Luke And verse 3, he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, you got to be kidding, Jesus. Ah, that's impossible. I can't do that. Increase our faith. Seven times a day, person keeps coming back in one single day, same sin over and over again and says, I repent, forgive me, Jesus. Oh, I can't do it. It's really, really difficult. How do we learn to forgive like Jesus forgave? This is a really challenging topic. And I want us to begin by defining some terms. What exactly does forgiveness mean? So I think sometimes we understand the term itself. The primary term for forgiveness that's used in the Greek New Testament is the word uh, afiemi, which means to release or to let go of. When the disciples left their nets behind and followed Jesus, it was the same word for forgiveness. They left him behind. A prisoner who was released from prison, he was forgiven. He was let go out of the prison or someone who had a debt that needed to be paid was released from that debt and they didn't have to pay. It, they were forgiven. And that's really the fundamental idea behind forgiveness, which is to release from a debt. Another word, apaluo, which has the same idea of releasing or walking away, letting go of, releasing the debt. And before we get into some of the specifics of how we do this daily in our lives, let's talk about Why? Why should we do this when it's so difficult and when it doesn't appear that we're going to actually get any payment back? Why should we forgive? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The fundamental reason why we forgive others is because we have been released from a greater debt. We have a debt that we cannot repay and Jesus releases us from that debt. That is the essence of the gospel. We don't come to the cross 
and say we have something to contribute to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we come completely empty-handed, as we talked about at the beginning of the Beatitudes. We can't pay our debt, but Jesus has released us from the debt. And so Paul tells us, now God wants you to release others in exactly the same way, just as God in Christ Jesus has released you. Because when they see that you are wronged, and you forgive, even if they don't deserve to be forgiven, even maybe if they aren't asking forgiveness and you still release them, they get a very very powerful and understandable picture of the way that God loves them in Jesus Christ. And so God will allow you, Christians, to be wronged in this broken world so that you can forgive. And the reason that you forgive fundamentally is not because the person deserves it, but because you have been forgiven similarly in Jesus Christ. And when you do so, you become like God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Like beloved children of your father, you will be like God. Be imitators, be mimics of him. And forgive like Jesus forgave. And when you do so, it's an offering just like Jesus' sacrifice was. It is worship. When you forgive, it's an act of worship. Well-pleasing to God, a fragrant aroma that comes up before the Father. And people see the way that you respond when you are wronged. And they get a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are an imitator. You are God in human flesh for them. Fundamentally, that is why we forgive others. But there's a third reason, and that is because if we don't forgive, we suffer. If we don't forgive, we suffer for it. I want you to turn back with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, and verse 14. At the very end of the Lord's Prayer, he has taught them, How to pray, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then notice in verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus, what are you saying? I thought eternal life was a free gift, but now you're saying it's not just that I receive the forgiveness of Jesus, but if I don't turn around and give that forgiveness, I can't have eternal life. No, it's not what he's talking about. Okay, there are two different aspects of forgiveness that you see throughout the Bible. One is eternal forgiveness. The moment that you believe that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, that debt is removed fully, finally, forever. You will never have to pay for it. You cannot pay for it. You can't add to the payment of Christ. It's removed in Christ. You have eternal life, not temporary life. You have eternal life. Because you did not earn it, you cannot lose it. It is your possession. You are now a member of the family of God. You're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter. That's eternal forgiveness. But there's also fellowship forgiveness. Once you are in the family, you enjoy that fellowship with God. You enjoy that relationship with God to the degree that you're walking in submission to the Father's will. You're walking in dependence on the power of the Spirit and you're saying to God, not my will, but your will be done. And then when you sin and there's friction in that relationship, you go to God and say, Jesus paid it all. Please restore me to fellowship. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins because Christ paid for them. 
and to cleanse us again from all unrighteousness so that we can continue to enjoy the relationship with him. The simplest analogy is that of a family. When your child is born into your family, they belong to you. Okay, that is your child. And they will never be removed from your family, but if they're not walking in obedience to their parents, if they're sinning against their parents and they're you know, beating up their brother or sister all the time, there's tension in the home. Words need to be spoken. I confess, please forgive me. Restore fellowship. So forgiveness is once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's also continual, day by day, moment by moment. And that's what Jesus is saying. And if we don't forgive others, he's saying, in these relationships here on earth, then it's going to affect our relationship with God. If we are harboring unforgiveness in our hearts, it's going to affect not only the relationship with that person that we're unwilling to forgive, but also the intimacy of our relationship with God. The psalmist put it like this. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Okay, any wickedness, not just unforgiveness, but when I have sin that is unconfessed in my heart, it creates a barrier in my prayer life. Is it that God can't hear? No, he knows all things that are going on. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. But it is friction in the relationship. There's not intimacy. We suffer for it. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. See another illustration from one of Jesus' parables. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Uh, now you need to know that the rabbis told people that they were obligated to forgive twice. Okay, if a person sins against you, forgive them if they repent. And they sin against you, forgive them if they repent. Maybe three times. But after that, forget it. Game over. Peter comes and says, Jesus, I'm willing to forgive up to seven times. What, G- what Peter's saying is, I'm willing to make this enormous, magnanimous concession to those who are my enemies and who wrong me up to seven times. And he's thinking, Jesus is going to go, wow, Peter, you are really righteous. You're mature. What does Jesus say to him? Not up to seven times seven, but up to 70 times seven. And Jesus is not saying 490 and then cut him off. He's just saying, Peter, you're not even in the ballpark, right? It's not seven. It's way more than you can even conceive of in your little forgiving heart. You're not even on the same page. Let me show you an illustration of God's kind of forgiveness. Okay, Peter? For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And in the context, he's probably talking about uh, servants of a king who were used to go out and collect the taxes for the king. And so they would go out and make collections, and based upon their area, they were supposed to bring back a certain amount of money. Well, one of the slaves didn't bring back enough money. When he'd begun to settle accounts with them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. So he he releases him, lets him go. He forgives the debt. Now, um, let me explain the math of this um, parable to you so you can really set it in context. Remember, one denarii was a day's wage. 
right? So a talent of silver was 6,000 days wages, okay? So one talent of silver, 6,000 days wages. We don't know if Jesus is talking about a talent of silver or a talent of gold. A talent of gold would have been 180,000 days wages. Okay, so let's just assume he's talking about a talent of silver, One talent of silver, just a single talent, would represent then about a half lifetime's wages. If you could collect your daily wages and save all of them, in half a lifetime, you could earn one talent. This slave owes 10,000 talents, which is about 60 million days wages, or 5,000 lifetimes. He owes 5,000 lifetimes worth. It's about 300 tons of silver, Uh, The Greek word here for 10,000 is the word myria, from which we get myriads. At that point in time, it was the largest numeral that was expressed by a Greek word. Now, if you've noticed that recently we're trying to come up with a new word to to describe a bigger number because the national debt is getting so big, we don't have a name for when we have to add on the next set of zeros, right? Well, that's where they are. This is as big a word as they have to express the biggest number that they can conceive of. It's 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents probably was more coinage than in the entire nation of Egypt at that time. Herod was a very wealthy king, and when he would collect taxes from Judea and Perea, what he would take in on an annual basis was only 200 talents of silver. So what Jesus is saying, what they hear is, this slave owes gazillions of dollars. Okay, that's kind of what it goes in their mind. Gazillions and gazillions. And they go, okay, Jesus, we get the point. It's just huge. It's beyond imagination. There is no possible way that this one single individual could ever repay this debt. Even though he promises, have mercy on me and I will repay everything. He cannot do it. The king forgives him simply because he asked. Simply because he asked. And someone has to absorb the debt. The king absorbs the debt. When there's a wrong done, someone absorbs the debt. The king says to himself, first, well, I'll just sell off the slave. A slave was worth about one-tenth of a talent. If he had eight children and one wife and he sells all the kids and the wife, he recoups one talent out of 10,000. He absorbs the debt. Now he just writes off the entire debt. We are supposed to see ourselves uh, like the slave in this illustration. We have a debt that we absolutely cannot repay. And God says, I forgive you. I I release you from the debt. But somebody still has to pay it, don't they? Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the debt so you don't have to pay the debt. But now notice the story goes on. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about three to four months wages. He owes gazillions and his friend owes three to four months. He owes a few dollars. Uh, I think calculation is about $16 is what he owes him. So he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. You know, (laughs) He's just been forgiven 10,000 talents. And he's choking the guy and yelling at him, give me back my money. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? It's almost verbatim what he had said to the king. Does he forgive him? 
Absolutely not. He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Yikes. Again, we are compelled to say, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're going to hand me over to the torturers? Jesus is not talking about going to hell. Jesus is not actually even talking about physical torture because when we fail to forgive, God doesn't hand us over to physical torture. It's an illustration. And if you have ever known someone who does not release grudges, who clings to grudges, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. They cling to it, they nurse it, They think about it, and what happens? They are tortured. They are tormented. It eats them up inside. I have known people who are 70 and 80 years old, and they're still rehearsing wrongs that were done 50 years ago. It's vivid in their mind because they've played the tape multiple times every day for their entire lives, and they're just torn up inside. Frederick Buechner has a great illustration of this little book he wrote called Wishful Thinking. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. The skeleton at the feast is you. Lewis Smedes put it uh, in a positive light, looking at it from the other side. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Okay, we need to forgive. It's in our best interest to forgive because if we don't, we are enslaved unforgiveness that we become bitter and shrunken people. We become tortured inside. Clara Barton was the founder of the American Red Cross. A great story that's told about her. Uh, one time a friend came and reminded her of a particular wrong that had been done to her. And it appeared that Clara Barton didn't remember. So her friend said, don't you remember when you were wronged by this person and what they did? Don't you remember that? And Clara Barton said, I distinctly remember forgetting it. I distinctly remember setting it aside. Uh, I asked uh, last night, Saturday night service, if anybody remembered uh, the story of the hiding place. And uh, it was tragic because everybody under 40 had never even heard of the hiding place. So I'm telling you right now, you need to read the book or watch the movie. We've got the book in the library, the DVDs in the library. Checked on iTunes this morning. You can download the audio book if, you know, that words and stuff is hard. Okay, get the audio book. This is a story that you need to know. 
This is a powerful story in the history of faith that you need to know. It's about the Ten Boom family. They were a family in Holland. In World War II, they were helping Jews escape from the Nazis. And eventually they were caught by the Nazis. And the whole family, they were shipped off to different prison camps, concentration camps. And they were treated cruelly. And all of Corey Ten Boom's family died in concentration camps except her. She survived. And she really struggled because there was one concentration camp guard who was especially cruel to her and especially cruel to her sister who died in camp. And she really wrestled with forgiving this man. And through a long process of time, she, she began to forgive. And she created this analogy in her mind. She said, forgiveness is like living in a bell tower. And when somebody wrongs you, they reach up and they pull the rope. And that bell gongs. And it doesn't stop. The wrong was done at a point in time, but it just keeps hurting. And it rings, and it rings, and it rings. And she said, forgiveness is choosing not to reach up and pull it again. And pull it again. And pull it again. You know, in, in Corey Timboom's life, she later was speaking. As, as an old woman, she was speaking. And afterwards, a man came up to her and thanked her for her talk, and it was that prison guard. He didn't recognize her. But she recognized him and she said as she saw him coming forth, her whole body just turned to ice. And she said, God, I cannot. Jesus, help me. And he reached out to thank her and shake her hand and she reached out and she said she could literally feel the love of Christ flowing into this man. She could feel Christ's love. How do we do this? One of the things I want you to understand this morning is Forgiveness is not an isolated event. It's not a moment in time. When you are wronged, you don't forgive and we're done. You don't forget. Psychologically, you can't make yourself forget certain things. You can't. It just doesn't happen. But what you can do is you can choose day after day when you're tempted to rehearse it again, to set it aside. And you will be tempted. When you are wrong deeply, you will be tempted. It may be every 30 seconds right after it happens. And you have to set it aside and say, God, I choose not to rehearse it. Instead, I trust you that you are a faithful judge. I trust justice to you. And you turn it over to God, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will do right by all the earth. You trust him, you turn it over. And it may be every 30 seconds because Satan keeps throwing it in your face because he wants you to be bitter and shriveled, okay? He wants you to be very small. He doesn't want you to give like Jesus gives. So it's every 30 seconds and you set it aside and then maybe you can go a minute or you go an hour or maybe a day before that bell rings again. And then maybe it's a week or a month, but every time you know it's gonna come back And you say, I will not rehearse it. I won't think about what I would say if I saw them again and how I'd crush them and how I'd I'd destroy them with my words or how I'd physically hurt them or any vengeance that I would take to get payment back for myself. I choose not to demand payment. God, I trust you that you will exact proper payment. And for some wrongs, you know what? That process requires an entire lifetime. It's forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, it's a muscle that grows stronger and stronger and you become a forgiving person. You become a person like God who can give in that way. But then you, you go beyond that. 
It's not just releasing the debt and not demanding payment. It's thinking, how can I actually turn around and bless that person? Jesus talked about it in the Beatitudes. Those who curse you, you bless. You can't do that. But Jesus Christ can do that through you. How can I bless that person? How can I turn around and actually do good for that person? I want you to look at another passage in Gospels of Luke chapter 7 and verse 40. Luke 7, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh, Obviously, Peter had issues with forgiveness, right? (laughs) Seems to be right at the center of all these discussions about forgiveness. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one who owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Uh, Here, Jesus uses a third word for forgiveness. It's the word charizomai, from which we get the word charis, grace. Okay, Releasing the debt and bestowing grace. Okay, Forgiveness is not just releasing the debt, that's part of it, but it's also doing good. It's bestowing grace. Remember our definition of grace is receiving or giving what you don't deserve or what the other person doesn't deserve. It is blessing instead of cursing. When one curses you, you don't throw back a curse in their face, but you turn around and you bless them. You give to them. You give, expecting nothing in return. That's supernatural. Turn with me back to the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, verse 43. Listen to Jesus' description here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. That's the world. Love your neighbors. Love the ones who do good to you. In particular for these folks, it was people who were of their same race. Their neighbor, they, they restricted at this point in time to other Jewish people, in particular a subset of those Jews who do well toward you. That's your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the world. That's natural. Jesus says, no, The righteousness of God goes far beyond that. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You will be like God. Love your enemies. And it doesn't mean at this point in time, emotionally feel warm and fuzzy toward them, but do good toward them. Do what is best toward them and pray for them. Now, I want to make a distinction here between forgiveness and wisdom, okay? I'll give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Uh, Imagine that your life savings has reached $100,000, okay? And uh, you've saved for many years, now you have $100,000. A friend comes to you and says, you know, if you invest that $100,000 with me, I've got a great deal. I can turn it into $200,000 in a year. And you say, okay, here's my $100,000. And you hand him your money. And your friend takes your money, and buys a really nice car, a $100,000 car, and then wrecks it. And he can't pay you back. Doesn't really want to pay you back. Doesn't even ask forgiveness. 
So you start saving your money again, and a few years later, you're back up to 100000 Your friend comes to you again and says, I got another really great deal. This is a much better deal than last time. Trust me. Give me your $100,000. Do you give him your $100,000? No. You don't? Probably not. Probably wouldn't be wise. Probably wouldn't be prudent to hand your life savings back over to that same person who has proven themselves to be untrustworthy with money. Right? Sometimes wrongs are done and the consequences of those wrongs can't be fixed in this lifetime. You're cut and the wound heals, but it leaves a scar. God has made us so that we will heal. But he's also made us so that we scar. And so wisdom might say, no, as Jesus instructed me, when my brother sins against me, I need to actually love him by rebuking him. Saying, you owe me $100,000. And if he won't repay, maybe I go according to the guidelines in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and I take along godly, wise believers and say, would you come and plead my case with me so that we don't have to drag the name of Jesus Christ into the courtroom, but we do this as the body of Christ and maybe that is loving that person and that's how you love and forgive and seek justice. But even if they then will not pay, you can still forgive. And you can still bless. You might have to do it from a distance. It might be that you just pray and you pray God's best in that person's life. Because there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You must forgive. No matter what anybody ever does to you, no matter if they don't even ask forgiveness or acknowledge the debt, you must forgive. That is in your best interest and that is how you become like God and you show Christ. Reconciliation requires both parties to come back together. It requires someone to say, I was wrong. I confess. Please forgive me. And then there's reconciliation. Both parties. You don't have control over both parties, but you do have control over whether or not you will grow bitter in your own heart or release the debt and trust God. Okay? That's critical. Let me give you another illustration. Imagine a friend comes and says, can I borrow your lawnmower? Take your lawnmower and they're mowing their lawn and their lawn's just full of rocks. They just totally destroy your lawn. I mean, it's just, just trash and bring it back. Here's your lawnmower. You know, totally broken. You might want to get it fixed. It's not running very well. Don't acknowledge that they've broken it. Don't offer to pay for it. Nothing. So you go. You get your lawnmower fixed. It's up. It's fixed again. You're mowing your lawn. Neighbor comes over. Hey, I see you got your lawnmower fixed. Can I borrow it? Do you loan them your lawnmower? Yes? Anybody loan it? Wow. No? Don't loan it? I see a lot of uncommitted. The first service we had four people who would loan it. You know what I say? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Uh, there's a lot of distance between life savings and lawnmowers, right? And there are a lot of things that are more important than life savings or lawnmowers, things that pertain to the soul, sometimes things so simple as a word that cut deep that you can't forget that's way more important than a lawnmower or even life savings. But the point is that sometimes 
If we forgive like charizomai, grace, forgiveness, God will call us to make ourselves vulnerable once again in some form or fashion. Sometimes God will call us to do that. Because grace by its very nature does open itself up to be rejected and abused. The cross of Jesus Christ is grace abused. Okay? It's grace scorned, grace rejected. That's what the cross is. And sometimes God will call us to do that. All times he will call us to love and to bless and to do what's right, even if we, in wisdom, have to protect ourselves or protect our family. Okay? Let me illustrate this for you. Look in the Sermon again on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus gives four illustrations of what he's trying to get across here. Chapter 4, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a Talionic justice. It's an Old Testament biblical principle. It's a principle that was in Hammurabi's code. It was very common. It was designed so that people wouldn't take more vengeance than they should take. An eye for an eye, not two eyes for an eye, not a head for an eye, just eye for an eye. Okay, don't go beyond what's appropriate. And that's true, but Jesus says there's so much more to the heart of God. Let me explain it to you. I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus is not talking about physical abuse here. Okay, he's not talking about a crime committed against you. He's talking about an insult. The right cheek, skips right cheek right here, pop, that's an insult, okay? In that day and age, that's an insult. You know what's a worse insult? To slap with my left hand. And he says, when you are insulted, turn the other cheek, okay? Don't retaliate and don't demand payment. If you were slapped on the cheek like that, you were allowed to require double payment. And Jesus says, don't do double payment, take a double slap, We need to work to explain that away somehow, so let's keep moving. That's a tough one. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Here Jesus is envisioning that someone sues you in a court of law and the judge says that you are guilty and you can't make payment immediately, so that person has a right to take your shirt as collateral until you make payment. They could not, though, according to the law, take your cloak. That was against the law. Jesus says, go ahead and give him your cloak as well. Hmm. It's getting a little more intense with each illustration. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Here Jesus is envisioning a Roman soldier coming up to a Jewish citizen and saying, carry my equipment. They had the right to do that anywhere throughout the Roman Empire. They could take one of the citizens and say, carry my equipment one mile. Not more than one mile, but just one mile. So the Jews would count out a Roman mile, 1,000 steps, drop the equipment. And Jesus says, go the extra mile. Even to those who are your oppressors, even to Rome, the ones you want to crush and destroy and get out of here, I say to you, give. Go beyond. Verse 42, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Here Jesus is envisioning someone who is destitute and needy, and they come and they need to borrow. He says, give. Now, when I was living in downtown Dallas, if I had given to every person that asked of me all that they wanted to take from me, I would have been absolutely poor and I couldn't pay my bills. I would not have been a good Christian citizen because I would have been not paying my bills. There there is wisdom that must be applied in this. And you see an innocent victim 
orphan or widow being slapped, you step in and you defend, correct? He's talking about you and what you take on behalf of Christ. And he's saying, give more. It's supernatural. You can't do it. But when you do it, people see Jesus. Recently, my wife was talking to a friend of ours who really needs to learn how to forgive. She's really struggling with forgiveness. And uh, our friend said, you know, I just can't forgive that person. You know, that's okay to say to the Lord because it's true. You can't. This kind of forgiveness you can't give, but Christ through you can. I've known people who've done this, who've been wrong so deeply, and yet there is a sweetness in them because they've released the debt. They don't feel compelled to demand retribution, demand payment. But to say to the Lord, I can't do it, you know, that's true. This is radical. This isn't the way the world operates. But her friend went on, she said, "I, I can't forgive And I won't forgive. Don't say that. Okay? You're in a very, very dangerous place if you say that. Because you're not saying, Thy will be done to the Lord. Say, I will not forgive. I choose not to forgive. I won't forgive. And you are setting yourself up to become a bitter, small, shriveled person. Because that that unforgiveness will eat inside of you and it will destroy your soul. And that other person may not even know that you're holding on to that bitterness, but it will destroy you. And you will never display the very love of Christ, the love of God toward us through Christ. If you hold on to these things, you must release them. Then you will be free. It's okay. Say, God, I can't. He says, I know you can't. And he can meet you right there. Say, God, I can't. Increase my faith. That's what the disciples said. Increase our faith. Yes, okay, I will. I'll increase your faith. I will give you the strength through the power of my spirit to love like Jesus loves, to forgive like Jesus forgives. And I'll give you wisdom to know how to apply these principles in each and every situation. And you will become like me. Okay, that is my prayer for our congregation. God's will for us is that we suffer for Christ Jesus. We will be wrong, people. It's God's design. But it's also his design that when we are, we are wronged, we respond just like Jesus, and the world looks in and they see this body of believers, this church, and they see how we forgive each other and how we forgive them, and they say, that is supernatural. I want that. I want that. So as we go to the Lord in prayer silently for just a few moments, I'd like for you to just ask the Lord, is there something in my life that I have not released? Do I need to forgive? Or maybe there is a person that you have wronged and you need to leave your offering at the altar and say, it's time for me to stop worshiping and to go seek forgiveness. This is such an enormously significant topic. Let's take a few moments before the Lord and ask him to search our hearts and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is only a work that you can do. I have great concern, Father, that we would listen to the voice of your Spirit and have the courage to say, yes, Lord. 
It feels impossible, but all that you have commanded, we will do. Father, I pray that we would release others of their debts as Jesus Christ has released us. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us really a beacon of light, that we would be salt and light in particular in the way that we we forgive. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his powerful example that gives us freedom. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, next week we're going to talk about money, what Jesus thinks about money. So that'll be fun. See you next week.